thanks to Soltech Solutions for sponsoring this episode of On The Ledge. Without their help, I couldn't bring you all this planty chat. I love working with brands that I've tried out and I can truly recommend. And that's certainly the case with Soltech Solutions. I can tell you from personal experience that their lights are superior quality, sturdy, stylish and effective. Soltech Solutions' fabulous customer service means you won't be left in the dark when it comes to buying great grow lights. Choose from their range of track lights, pendant style lights, or a simple bulb that will screw into most standard light fittings for setup that takes just moments. Check out Soltech Solutions' range of lights now at soltechsolutions.com and get 15% off with the code on the ledge. That's soltechsolutions.com. Enter code on the ledge for 15% off. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Party. Welcome to the show. I'm Jane Perone, your host with the most, provided the most means a heck of a lot of houseplants. And this is On The Ledge Podcast, the podcast for people for whom houseplants take up a large proportion of their waking thoughts. Thanks to a listener called Real Artifice in the US for writing a lovely review for the show and to Barry and Marissa for becoming legends this week. A reminder also to enter my competition to win a pair of tickets to the Hampton Court Palace Garden Festival Flowers After Hours events on Friday the 8th of July in the great capital city of London. I'm going to be doing a live podcast from there and I'd love there to be some On The Ledge listeners in the audience cheering me on. So do go to my Instagram, j.l.perone, to enter the competition if you are in travelling distance of Hampton Court. Follow me and comment with the name of somebody you'd like to go along with and who knows, the tickets could be yours. The closing date is 11.59pm BST tonight. That's the Friday the 24th of June. So don't delay. Enter now. My obsession with books goes right back to being a young child with a torch reading late into the night under my duvet. And houseplant books were definitely part of that scene from an early age, as you'll know if you've been a listener to the show for a while. In this week's episode, I chat to Maria Faella of fellow houseplant podcast, Bloom and Grow Radio. It just so happens that Maria's new book, Growing Joy, is out this week. So we hopped online to talk about everything from our favourite planty books to why we like nothing better than hitting the charity shop or the thrift store to find some vintage gardening literature. Hello, legends. I'm Maria Faella, the other plant lady podcaster hanging on the internet alongside Jane, the host of the Bloom and Grow radio podcast, another houseplant-based podcast, and the new author of the book, Growing Joy, The Plant Lover's Guide to Cultivating Happiness and Plants. Uh, Jane and I were some of the first plant lady podcasters out there, and I'm so lucky to be a repeat guest on today's show and thrilled to be here. So thanks for having me, Jane. I want to hear all about your book. But first, I want to hear about if there's any houseplant books that you're inspired by and ones that you keep going back to. I have a really embarrassingly large collection of plant books. I would say maybe like 50% of my book collection on my bookshelf is plant books because I have this habit of going into thrift stores 
I'm sure you do too. And always going to the gardening section and finding the vintage houseplant care books from the seventies. And they're always a dollar, like they're always so cheap. Uh, and that's actually where I started learning about plants. Uh, and I've, I, I've, amassed quite the collection. So I would say my favorite books to read are are the older ones because it's so fun to see the prices. It's so fun to see what plants used to cost <laughs> um, and also see what trends, you know, have, have uh, survived the test of time. You know, there's a non-houseplant related book, but a nature related book that I read lately that I really can't stop thinking about. Have you read Braiding Sweetgrass? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I know I'm late to the game. It came out a long time ago, but I only recently read it. And I live in the mountains. I live in the country right now, actually near the land that she discusses, that she grew up on. And my relationship with nature has completely changed after reading this book, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, I can't recommend it enough. And I'm thankful offline, you and I were just talking about reading really good writers when you're writing a book can be really intimidating. And I'm really thankful that I read the book after I finished Growing Joy, because I think that totally would have thrown me for a loop because she's the most beautiful writer. And Mm. she combines botany and storytelling and anthropomorphizes trees and plants in the most magical way. And I found myself, I rarely reread stuff, but I've gone back and I'm actually, I listened to the audiobook and I've gone back and re-listened to chapters because it's just such captivating writing about nature and plants. And I think every plant person should read it. I totally agree. It's such a good book, isn't it? And I just found myself like having a little cry. I mean, I think maybe this is a... a a perimenopausal thing, but I, I just found it a really, really emotionally touching book. Oh, yeah. And as you say, it just put a totally different spin on our my understanding of botany and her position as a an indigenous person and also a botanist just gave her this really interesting insight and a woman too yeah there's another book of hers um about moss which is really worth reading as well i believe it's called Finding Moss or Gathering Moss. That's it. Yeah, that is a really good book too. And you think, oh, Moss, what is that? Oh, again, she blows your mind with every page. I bet. Uh, revelations oh about Moss. So yeah, that's a great choice. I've started a planty book club in my garden society that I have. And uh, I feel like it's just going to be like a Robin Wall Kimmerer fan club because that's definitely the next book. We just finished Braiding Sweetgrass. So that's definitely the next book I'm going to propose. <laughs> I don't know if that's biased, but I don't care because I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, she is really, really special. And yes, you're right. I do hang out in thrift stores or as we call them in the here in the UK, the Chazza, the charity shop. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I love it. The shop is the the UK equivalent of the thrift store. And you're right. I mean, I too have lots of houseplant books from the past. I mean, I've spoken on the Plant Daily podcast about my love of Thalassa Crusoe and her books. So good. That was great. That was a great episode. If you like the Thalassa Crusoe no-nonsense style, I can also recommend for outdoor gardening any book by a chap called Christopher Lloyd, who is a famous, unfortunately now deceased English gardener. And he's very no nonsense. And he's just his writing is brilliant. Um, And his most famous book is probably The Well-Tempered Garden. So, yeah, look out for Christopher Lloyd if you amazing for an outdoor book. If you ever come to England, you have to go to his garden, Great Dixter, which is an amazing garden. Houseplant books. I wonder whether some people listening to this will be thinking to themselves, well, I've never picked up a houseplant book and I never will just because I love going online, looking on my phone. Are they missing out on anything or are we just out of step? I mean... I don't know if I'll sound like an elder millennial, but they're absolutely missing out. There's just something about walking over to your bookshelf and pulling a book off of the shelf and opening it, going to the back of the book, looking at the index, finding whatever you're looking for. Um, the connection with the author that you feel too. I mean, I actually write about this in, in Growing Joy, my book that 
you know, plants are such a method, a, a means of connecting with people and finding these vintage books on plants is like connecting with these authors from a different generation and hearing their advice, right? Like then they become part of my garden. Um, and I guess you could argue that for the internet, but we spend so much time on screens, like in the morning with a cup of coffee or, you know, winding down, there's just something elevated with books that I think, you don't get on a screen. I will say I, I do love audiobooks. I've I've definitely gotten into audiobooks, probably being a podcaster myself. I love listening to them when I'm walking or driving. Um, so I will say that is kind of a, a more modern interpretation of books than, but I don't know. There's, there's something about the smell of books, right? I mean, what do you think, Jane? I agree. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I have had the experience of buying a secondhand gardening book online and it arriving and you open the envelope and the person who owned it clearly was a smoker because the oh whole book stinks of cigarette <laughs> smoke. But normally the smell of a book is a wonderful thing if, they, uh, have, if it hasn't been exposed to nicotine. You're right. And yeah, you can take it anywhere. You can take it uh, out to the park with you. You can lie on the grass and read it and i also love illustrations in house oh, books yeah. too there's just such a rich a rich vein one of the ones i really like is there's a reader's digest houseplant book which has got a i'll put this in the show notes has got a i don't know if it's actually a photograph or an illustration or a combination but it's like a it's like a house-shaped greenhouse with all these houseplants inside. And I absolutely love that one. I, I just love those illustrations and especially ones from the sort of 50s and 60s. Just, yes. just something really special about them. I think too with books, and you and I have obviously just gone through this process. I know that you did so much research for your book, which by the way, I cannot wait to get. I was so excited to to sign up for one with your Kickstarter. But um there's so much research. Books are such uh, labors of love. And there's something when I read it from a book, I also, I believe it a little bit faster than I do from a blog. You know, um, I, I feel like a lot of, of research, a lot of care and time goes into it. You know, you have to get it read by a copywriter. You have to get it proofread. You have to do all of these things that, you know, a lot of stuff on the internet doesn't do for you. So that's, that's another thing that I feel like books are obviously, yeah, elevated is, is the better way to say it. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, having had the experience of doing research for my book and then coming across things that were claimed online and just trying to back them up with actual evidence and finding that it wasn't, yeah, there was no evidence, mm-hmm. um, that made me realise quite how uh, much extra work has to go into actually confirming everything for a for a book. Uh, I mean, one example which I can give you from the book, which is the chapter on the spotty begonia, begonia maculata. There's loads of places where it's claimed online that the red undersides of the leaves inspired Christian Louboutin to do the red soles on his shoes. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, okay. So that's like, you can read that in quite a few places. As far as I can find from all the interviews I looked at with him and newspaper reports about his career and his shoes and his design inspirations, it is not true that Begonia Maculata was his inspiration. His inspiration, according to every other source, was seeing his assistant painting her fingernails red. So again, you kind of wonder where these things come from. And maybe, maybe it is true. Maybe somebody spoke to Christian Louboutin in person and, and he told them that. But as far as I can fathom, that's one of those things that's just gone around the internet. And is co- I mean, you see the things just being copied across and copied across. Uh, so yeah. yeah, we hold books to a higher standard of research, I think, which is a good thing. Definitely. But, but tell me about your book. I guess this is one of these things where everyone kind of assumes that once you sort of get into the world of being a planty celeb, that you've got a book in you. But how did this book come about? (laughs) Yeah, I could have never, I mean, five years ago, I would have never thought that I would write a book. The last English class I took, I was 18, right? Um, And I started a podcast because I like to talk. I have a degree in opera. I like to use my voice. I didn't ever really consider myself a writer. Um, But how did, okay, so how did the book come about? I am so fortunate that I have a listener who listens to the show and works for the wellness imprint of a large publisher in the States. And 
on my show on Bloom and Grow Radio podcast, I have a series called Plant Side Chats. And there are many solo episodes where I talk about life lessons learned in the garden or learned from my houseplants. And plants are a very emotional, spiritual thing for me. I feel like they're the number one wellness tool, the number one self-development tool I've ever experienced. And I'm a self-development junkie. So that says a lot. I've spent a lot of money on fancy wellness retreats and yoga classes and lots of self-development books and uh, plants. The simplicity of caring for plants is really what what helped me. Um, and I have this through line on my podcast of, of sharing these little, you know, woo-woo or cheesy life lessons learned from plants. And um, one of my listeners and editor, current editor approached me asking if I would be interested in not writing a plant care book, but writing a self-care book about plant care because she herself understood the transition or that experience that we all have as plant lovers, where maybe we start caring for plants because we want to bring them home and make our, our homes look beautiful. But I think many of us continue caring for plants because of the way that they make us feel and the joy that they bring us. But when you look at the landscape of gardening books, most of them are talking about plant care, not about self-care. When she first actually, Jane, I think you'll find this funny, but when she first reached out to me, she like was in my website notifier. Like she sent me a message on my, on my, uh, my website. And, you know, you and I probably get pitched a lot. We get spam, we get a lot of stuff. And I just thought she was like spamming me. I didn't even think she was real. I had never heard of the name of this publisher. And so I saw it come in and then I kind of ignored it for a while. And then off chance, I, I showed the email to my dad and my dad was like, Maria, are you kidding me? That's one of the biggest publishers in the country. It, it, write her back right now. He made me write her back, you know, in front of him on my cell phone. And um, I met her and, you know, she, our kindred plant heart spirits met and, you know, I had a book proposal 48 hours later. So it definitely came out of nowhere. I definitely didn't anticipate myself writing a book, but I will say it's probably one of the most beautiful, heart opening, exciting experiences that I've had. And I'm so excited that I get to share my perspective on plants and what, and what they can do to, you know, amplify the joy in our lives with this little book. It's like a little love letter to plants. There are lots and lots of plant care books out there. There seems to be a new one coming out every week and they all offer something slightly different. I mean, you know, I always sort of think, oh gosh, I can't need another plant care book. And then I open it up and think, oh, this is actually really good. This is giving another perspective because there is always something new to learn. But it's nice to have a book which takes a different slant. Now, I'm sure all of us have, including me, felt at some time in the past couple of years like they've gone through the the seven, I don't know if there are seven stages, how many stages are there? But the stages of being a houseplant enthusiast of the first initial rush of buying lots of plants and then perhaps feel like the joy is drained away a little bit. I mean, I've been collecting plants since I was about five, which is at least more than four decades mm-hmm. of plant. So it's been a long, it's been a slow burn for me. But I can tell you that I really have felt sometimes in the last couple of years that I've got too many plants. I can't cope. What am I, why am I doing this? So I need some tips, Maria. Can you give me a little bit of advice from the book, how to re-spark the joy? Oh, yeah. I mean, girl, I feel you. I've gone from 150 plants to about 80 plants over the last two years. Uh, So I can totally understand. And I think you point something out. Our relationship with plants can be seasonal, right? I think we get into that honeymoon phase with plants and think that we're supposed to stay there and that this joy that we feel when we see the first monstera leaf unfurl is going to resound throughout our life where our relationship with plants is seasonal, just like our lives, you know, different things happen in life that are going to affect the amount of time that we prioritize with them. Obviously, as I have a lot of friends that have become new mothers this year um, and seeing how their relationship with everything has changed, right? So I think number one, just acknowledging that you're going through a different season of life. And that's where those plant life parallels come into play that I wax poetic about all over the book. Um, But I actually have a whole chapter in Growing Joy on the dark side of plant care, because I think it's something that people don't talk about as much in our community, because due to things like Instagram and Pinterest and YouTube, where everybody has these like beautifully curated, perfect looking plants, when we kill a plant 
people don't like to show their dead plants online, right? Um, people don't like to share that they're struggling, but we all struggle. We all kill a plant, right? And it's about how you bounce back from that plant fail that kind of defines what the rest of your journey looks like when it comes to caring for plants. So uh, there's a whole chapter of Bloom and Grow on, uh, sorry, in Growing Joy on how to deal with plant parent overwhelm, how to identify your right number of plants. So So number one, I think my first tip would be assessing how many plants that you have and assessing what the right plant number for you is in this moment. And in the book, I kind of guide you through a a couple of different ways for how to assess that. But a lot of people right now, what I'm feeling in our community, and it sounds like it's what you're feeling in your community of listeners too, is in the pandemic, we had so much time and we were home. So a lot of us got a lot of houseplants, right? the world is opening back up. People have to start commuting back to work. People have social calendars again. And now all of a sudden, the number that felt healthy and joyful in the moment when we were all indoors isn't feeling healthy anymore. And I think you need to make peace with understanding that your collection is going to ebb and flow and change just like our plants do. And being comfortable letting go of plants, whether that's gifting them, whether it's saying, you know what, I appreciate you and I'm composting you. It's not even worth gifting you, you know, it's just time to like, let go of the plant, whether it's donating them to, you know, a local botanical garden or nursing home or something like that. There's tons of creative ways that you can let go of plants and still let them bring other people joy. But just because you buy a plant doesn't mean you need to keep it. And I think it's important to find a plant collection and plant number that brings you joy and not stress. And if you have a plant in your collection that 50% of the time brings you stress instead of joy, then that plant isn't right for you. And when you let go of that plant, you either create a, a collection that works for you, or you make space for other plants that work for you that will actually help continue to spark curiosity and awe and all of those awesome things that we get with our plant collections. So I think number one is I would definitely talk about, you know, definitely encourage people to assess their plant number and not be ashamed to let that change and ebb and flow, you know, just like the seasons do. Do you know what? I'm going to say one word here, and that is calatheas. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, I can grow the things. I can grow them. I just don't want the stress. I just don't want Preach. the work. Yep. And, I'm actually, and I'm, I'm actually going to widen that out to all Maranta group plants. I've got a Maranta lemon lime in my propagation box. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to give that away to somebody because I just don't want it anymore. It's just too much hassle. It gets spider mite every time you look at it funny and I'm just so (laughs) fed up with it. So, you know, the only time it's happy is if it's in the sort of very humid propagation box where where spider mite, it's just too humid. And I'm just like, I just can't be bothered with it anymore. So I think that's going. I also actually posted on my Instagram stories yesterday, a contrast between my beautiful Hoya polyneura, fishtail Hoya, and my completely dead and de-leafed Hoya Kerii, which oh no. had been limping along. And people then like messaged me saying, well, you know that the Hoya Kerii is like a succulent Hoya and you need, I'm like, I know all of the things about this Hoya. Right. I just, I it's just, just slightly overwatered it. Yeah. And I'm just like, and I can, I mean, that's the annoying thing is that's kind of the thing that I grow best is succulents. But this one, for whatever reason, no. So yeah, it, you're absolutely right. And I have a real thing for uh, propagation. So I do end up with quite a lot of excess plants, but I do have a nice little gig going where um, I have a Facebook group for my local community, which is like an abundance group. So you give things away, you offer things up. So I I just give them away on that usually and um, make a little money for the local hedgehog rescue in the process. Oh, and, I love um, that. It's great. It's really great. And hopefully... You'll never... And hey, if you're lonely and looking for plant friends, going up on a Facebook and offering some free plants, that's a great way to make plant friends. Even this weekend connecting, you know, I also have a whole chapter on the book on, on connecting, on, on using plants as a vehicle for connection and, and cultivating relationships. And I just experienced it again. I mean, I experience this all the time and I hear from our community all the time, but this weekend 
you know, so I moved to the middle of nowhere, kind of on a whim with my husband. And we literally don't know anyone. Like we have no friends here in, in the area that we live. And so we've been trying to make friends. And, you know, uh, I say in my book, like making friends as an adult is hard, but making plant friends is easy. And it's so freaking true. So this last weekend, I went to a, um, a, it was like called a garden party. It was, a, it was just a, it was a spring event that had garden lectures. And I signed up for all the lectures and I went to a Dahlia lecture. I've never grown Dahlias before. And sitting next to me was the cutest girl who happened to live 15 minutes from me, which where we live is a lot because no one lives close to us. And she started 60 dahlias and offered me five of her dahlias. We've been immediate plant friends. We've already gone plant shopping twice together. We text each other about our, you know, where we live. We have a little microclimate that's much colder than our prostate. So we've been, you know, going back and forth of, okay, when are you bringing yours out? You know, and I've made this friend through the power of plants, you know, and it's just because she, you know, gift offered me some of her dahlias in this very sweet gesture. And I'm offering her some, I'm starting some seeds for her and we're going to like be garden buddies this summer. So I think that's, yeah. So I think that's another, you know, obviously easy way to make friends. And I think with giving, getting rid of, because her dahlias were overwhelming her. So she did exactly what we talked about was, and they're bringing me so much joy. Oh my God. I'm having so much fun, you know, helicopter parenting these dahlias right now. Cause I'm so, (laughs) (laughs) I'm so terrified of them. Do you have a slug issue where you are? That's going to be your downfall. Uh, I'm growing in containers on a second story balcony. Okay, so, so you'll be I'm fine. Hoping, I'm hoping we'll be okay. Uh, and I'm hoping the squirrels don't notice. What about earwigs? Do you have earwigs in uh, your way? That I don't know because this is my first growing season in this new area. Okay, well... This is what you need to watch out for with dahlias is uh, earwigs. Earwigs love dahlias. Okay. So there's a little trick you can do. Just trying to remember because my dad always used to do this. I don't really bother because I'm not bothered by, don't really mind earwigs. But there's a way, I think you put a, is it like a rolled up piece of cardboard or something? And the earwigs collect in the cardboard. Anyway, I'll dig out the tip and send it to you. But I don't even know if you have it. You must have earwigs, surely. Anyway, I'm sure we do. I'm sure we have it all. Those little black pincery things. Anyway, yeah. Well, that's great. That is lovely to hear that you've made a friend. I um, helped to run a community herb garden on a roundabout. You don't even have roundabouts, do you? Yeah, no, we (laughs) do. strange. Do you have roundabouts? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so it's on a roundabout, which sounds really unappealing, but it's actually really, really nice. And um, it's great because every so often we have a volunteer session and we're just all there weeding away. And it's just a really nice chat, catch up time. And yeah, again, you make friends that way, too, just by gardening side by side mm-hmm. in that community garden. It's it's a really, really valuable experience. And people walk by Sometimes they're drunk. That's okay. <laughs> so then you have a nice giggle with the other with the other friends, right? <laughs> Somebody interesting always walks by. Like there's often a drunk person. There's often somebody, oh my somebody God. who may be going off for some kind of uh, illegal transaction of some kind or other. Um, that's amazing it's it's really it's a really really great um set of people who volunteer and I get so much out of it and you just the other lovely thing about that is it's like aromatherapy because you're working with all these Mediterranean herbs Mm. so you literally come out smelling of this these aromatic herbs which is amazing so that's nice amazing I have plans for a big herb garden this summer and I you know I did a lot of research for growing joy on scent and the brain and, you know, scent, it, we, with plants, we really don't realize how awesome it is to engage all five of our senses with our plant collection. I think maybe we do touch and sight, but scent is such a powerful sense, <laughs> obviously. Um, it's the closest, it's a, it's a straight shot to our brain and has such a strong connection with memory. And so this year I've been really after doing all this research for the book, I've been trying to evaluate how to 
had a work scent into my plant collection a little bit more indoors mm-hmm. with trying to grow some scented plants indoors and then outdoors with uh, really going ham in the herb garden this summer and doing some scented geraniums and all sorts of stuff. But that's another thing that I think when you were saying, you know, if you're feeling stuck or if you're feeling burnt out in your plant collection, because I think it does get stale, right? If you do the same thing for, you know, decades, finding something that sparks your curiosity or something you don't know a lot about and then becoming a student again. So for me, learning about these scented plants, you know, Hoya, I know everybody's obsessed with Hoya, but I just, because I haven't been collecting plants in the last two years, I don't have a lot of Hoya, but now I'm really interested, not because of the leaves, but the blooms and the scents. So that's got me really curious. I'm going to put a little health warning in front of this. I am not recommending that anyone tries this at home, but have you licked a Hoya? Like a leaf? The flowers. Have you licked the flowers of a Hoya? Hoya nectar. Again, I say this again. Please do not try this at home, even though I'm sure it's perfectly safe. It is just basically nectar, which is just sugar. But uh, there's a whole Facebook group devoted to this. Licking Hoyas. They're amazing. Like they taste amazing. I haven't had one bloom yet. I'm dying. Oh, well, you got to wait for that now. I will lick my next Hoya. There's <laughs> some amazing flavors. Um, Hoya Bertonii tastes like butterscotch. <gasps> I missed yeah, that like, in my book. Yeah. Darn it. Because I it's didn't amazing. put that in the taste section of my book. Darn. <laughs> All right. Next one. The next one. <laughs> Well, as I say, I'm not sure whether I should be, I'd say, recommending it. Like you undertake Hoya licking at your own risk, (laughs) but it is something that lots of people have tried. I think the plant daddies did a TikTok reel on it. It just feels so naughty to do it, but it, I mean, it's a thrill and it tastes, to me anyway, they taste really good and very different each one. So there you go. Okay, I will lick my next Hoya and record it and I will tag you so you can share, so the community can see. I'll, I'll be the guinea pig. More from my chat with Maria shortly, but now it's time for a question. And this one comes from Jeffrey and concerns an anthurium, specifically anthurium andrianum. Now, Jeffrey discovered when reading up on these plants that this species of anthurium is an epiphyte. And logically enough, Jeffrey's wondering why they've never seen one of these planted like you might see a Phalaenopsis orchid or mounted like a staghorn fern or an air plant. Well, this is a really good question. Let's just remind ourselves of what an epiphyte is before we go any further. Put simply, it's just a plant that grows on another plant. A distinct from a parasite, that's a plant that grows on another plant and gets its nutrients entirely from that plant. So we're thinking about things. The obvious one that springs to my mind is the broom rape genus of plants, Orobank, which are parasitic plants that live in my part of the world. There's there's a lot of species actually, over a couple of hundred, I think, but some of those live in the UK. So they're true parasites. They draw all their energy from other plants' roots, They've got no chlorophyll, so they're entirely dependent on other plants. There's one that, that parasitizes ivy, for example, called ivy broom rape. So that's a parasite. A hemiparasite, well, that's a plant that draws some of its nutrients from the plant that it's attached to. And things like mistletoe, viscum album, fits into that category. But epiphytes, no, they're just using the plant or tree as an anchor. They're not sucking anything out of it in terms of nutrients or water. I guess the TL colon DR answer is not all epiphytes are the same. Their root systems can be really, really different depending on exactly where they grow and how they grow. Trees and other plants that plants grow on vary enormously. It depends on the setting and so on. So both the species type can affect the roots and also the conditions in which it finds itself growing can affect the roots. And indeed, Anthurium andrianum is one of these plants. And in the Anthurium genus, there are a lot of epiphytic plants in that genus. Where does it come from? Anthurium andrianum is native to Colombia and Ecuador, although it has spread more widely through that region. And they do live up in the canopy of trees in nature over time as they grow they become quite gangly and not the compact plants that we're used to seeing coming out of nurseries 
with those beautiful, brightly coloured, usually red or sometimes other coral colours, spathe and spadix that we're so familiar with in their houseplant identity as the flamingo flower. And when they're growing in the wild, like other epiphytes, they'll find pockets of leaf litter, decaying organic matter in nooks and crannies in trees. And that's where they will put down their roots. Some roots may be exposed. Other roots may be pushed down into this leaf litter. Epiphytes do massively vary in the way they grow. It'll partly depend on the species and also partly depend on the conditions they're faced with. They have to be adaptable because trees obviously don't have uniform sizes of nooks and crannies available for them. So they do vary hugely. There's no reason, Jeffrey, why you couldn't try growing this plant in a more epiphytic style, if I can put it that way, whether that it would involve wrapping the roots around something like a piece of cork and covering that with moss or using an orchid style pot for it. That would certainly be possible. I guess the reason why people don't do this is that often this particular species, the flamingo flower, is treated as a throwaway gift plant. It's not really something that people keep going with for a long time. And if you want to have a look at the different ways that epiphytes grow, there's a really great public Facebook group you could have a look at called Epiphytophilia, I think it's called. I'd be really interested to see if any of you have ever seen a flamingo flower growing in an epiphytic fashion, perhaps mounted to something like a stag's horn fern or in a basket. It would be fascinating to see. So do send me pics or links if you have. I hope that helps, Jeffrey, and it just shows the more you know about a plant species, the more it helps you to grow them in interesting ways. That's all for question of the week. If you've got a question, drop me a line on theledgepodcast at gmail.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And now it's time to get back to my convo with the delightful Maria Faella. Do you find with scent that certain scents are incredibly nostalgic to your childhood? I know your mum is a keen gardener. I find certain plant smells just set me right off. And I'm like tear in, tear in the corner of my eye thinking about, you know, my granddad. Like if I smell, if I, if I go into a greenhouse where tomatoes are growing and you get that tomato leaf mm-hmm. smell that is incredibly nostalgic to me going to my grandparents house i just find that really 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 potent yes, it is it's so powerful with our with our memory um i had a really interesting experience 6 years ago now yes my mom is an amazing gardener she's italian i come from italian immigrant grandparents uh my you know my nonni used to like sow seeds into her bra to like sneak them into the states and grow them you know on her property <laughs> she grew everything i mean they they never grocery shopped and my grandparents lived in queens and the front of their house had, it was a popular in the seventies, you know, it was like a thick kind of warped glass. You couldn't really see through it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, they had this porch that had this thick glass and Nani would start her seeds in it. And it was a jungle every time you walked in. And this is so funny for me to think about because I talk about plant blindness in my book. And I was so disconnected with nature that I grew up with the most epic plant lady of a grandma. And I have almost no memories visually of, the, of her plants. My mom swears that my grandma, she had a monstera that apparently climbed up to the ceiling and across her ceiling 
nine and I have no memory of it. And I grew up going to my grandparents' house every week, but I have no sight memory of it. But about six years ago, as I was waking back up to connecting with plants again, uh, I was in a restaurant with my mom and my sister and they had geraniums, like normal geraniums, not scented. And I smelled the geranium and I was immediately transported back to my grandma's porch. And it was because Nani had maybe 20 geraniums that she would put outside in the summer and then bring inside in the winter. And that was the predominant smell of her porch. And ever since that moment, I mean, I was transported to my childhood of sitting in the porch with my grandma. It was wild. And now I always keep geraniums because of her and, you know, have a little smell. So yeah, I think scent is so important. Basil too. Basil is what reminds me of my mom. And if I could wear basil perfume, I would. I just think it's the greatest scent ever. But yeah, and scents are also extremely personal for people. So, you know, what I love, someone else is not going to love, you know, it's so Mm. personal. Do you find that too? Totally. Yeah. My husband always claims he has a better sense of smell than me and he probably does. He cannot stand like anything like hyacinths and paper white narcissi. He finds just too strong. He can't. Isn't that interesting? Bear. Yeah. He finds it just too potent. Or if you like at the minute here in the UK, there's a lot of um, lilacs blooming, lilac flowers outside. And again, like if I present him with one of those, I just, I'm a weirdo who will literally just stand there when I'm walking the dog in front of a bush, just like sniffing lilacs from up. I must get looks. (laughs) I'm just, just, just soaking it all up. But if I give one to him, he'll just be like, oh, I can't cope. That's just too strong. It's too strong. I think he would say that my sense of smell is not that advanced but I think it's probably just appreciates slightly different things but yeah I just go around sniffing things I am that person that weird person in the park he's like why is she standing there staring at that shrub (laughs) it's probably flowering once I started also (laughs) learning about I did a lot of research on forest bathing um I have a whole chapter on it in my book and I started learning about the VOCs that trees give off and their power Mm. and now I'm the crazy person I'm not even smelling the blooms I'm going up to a tree and rubbing the needles in my hands really fast and then Mm. like deeply inhaling (laughs) like I I look so crazy on my nature walks, but now I really want to get, I really want to get that, that relaxation, that rush of relaxation that I get when I engage with, with trees. So I actually have burning in my office right now, Hanoki oil. Hanoki is a Japanese tree that I, I talk about a lot in my book. There's this researcher. um, He's a scientist who I have a nerd, a crush on. His name is Dr. King Lee. And he's done all of this research in Japan and there are medicinal forests about the power of this Hinoki oil. So I found a candle and I burn it in my office to try and connect with the, with the forest, even when I'm trapped indoors in my computer, you know? Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we are only just waking up to the wonders of uh, trees Mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, Now, I want to know a little bit more about this book, the writing process. You said that you weren't a writer. Let's just share a bit of mutual pain about (laughs) the process of writing a book. Where do we start with that? I mean, I think I think it gets hard once you finish the manuscript, to be Mm -hmm. honest. I think it gets hard in that finals. Those people think, oh, it's you've written the manuscript. That's it. You've done it. But actually, that's when the hard work starts, it seems. Oh, my gosh. Well, but yes, I have a funny story to tell about that. But even before that, you know, something that I don't think I was ready for was, you know, I, I find myself very fortunate that I've had this experience of kind of getting handed a book deal on my lap. Right. That's very unique. And I'm very, very fortunate and thankful for that. But I also was extremely unprepared for what the process of writing a book would look like because of that, because I basically just tumbled down this hill of figuring out this opportunity and how to navigate it. And you go through these negotiations with a book deal and and you're going back and forth and you get a lawyer and you're figuring it all out. And then you sign the you sign this contract. You're in constant communication with all these people helping you kind of cross this finish line. And then they say, okay, like see you in three months with your first draft. And I'm just like, wait, what? Uh, is anybody going to hold my hand through this process? And 
you know, I don't have kids, but what I, I, I kind of equate it to, and I don't want to equate it to this, but, you know, women talk about, or, or parents talk about going to the hospital, having the baby, and then just kind of like being given your baby and just sent off, right. Then you've got to just go figure out how to take <laughs> yeah. care of your baby on your own. Like no one in the hospital is helping you. And, uh, that was kind of my, I kind of had whiplash. I think my first month of, Oh, wow. I have to write this now. Like how do I write this? Right. How do I make an outline? How mm-hmm. do I start tackling this mountain that feels insurmountable? And I actually almost gave my book advance back because I just was so overwhelmed with uh, doubt and, and overwhelm of what that process looked like. But then you, you definitely go, th- I mean, I definitely went through phases. You're a much more established writer than I am. So you probably skipped the first few, but you know, I went through these phases of figuring out how I write, figuring out when I write, for how long, like when to schedule the writing experience. And then you kind of start to get excited because then you start to learn how to like edit your own, you write, but then you start to learn how to shape writing and that gets really exciting. And then, you know, I had a couple of days where I would drop in and I would write for like 10 hours straight and Billy would just like bring me meals because I was just in this really cool, like flow state of writing. So that was exciting. But then you go through the phase where you read your, you know, 75% of your draft and you think that you have to delete it all and that you're terrible. And then you have a great time, you know, day where you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. And you just go through this crazy roller coaster. I'm fortunate enough that my editor kind of stepped in and, and held my hand through through some of the process. But yes, yeah, so that whole process was a real whirlwind. And I think I I think it took double the amount of time that I had originally thought it would to write the book because I don't think I anticipated what a learning curve I would have for writing would, you know, would look like. But I'm having this funny interview for a local newspaper. I'm 90% done with my ma- my first draft of my manuscript. And I, I'm talking to this interviewer who happens to be an author. And I told her, oh my gosh, I'm almost done with my book. This has been wild. I can't believe how much time it's taken, you know. I'm about to submit, I'm about to submit my first draft. And she says, Oh, honey, you're submitting your first draft. And I said, yeah, yeah. I'm so excited. I'm so proud. And she was like, Oh, like that's when the work starts. Like I thought that I was almost, you know, over the hill and I did not know what I didn't know, but like you mentioned, I mean, I think what people don't understand is you write your first manuscript and then you send your book off and then you write your second manuscript. And for me, that was restructuring the whole book and doing a, a, a lot of edits. And then you find what you're on to and you really are able to distill it. But it's such a wild process. I mean, I couldn't believe it would take two years, but yet we've needed all, all of the time in order, in order to make the book happen, you know? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm thinking of, uh, I recently read some quotes from uh, Franz Kafka, the novelist about writing and from his diaries. And it was just like, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Franz Ka- Kafka, but it was just a very uh, familiar experience where he's kind of going, it's a series of entries over a series of days. And he's like, still, I have yeah. nothing. Still, I have nothing to say. And then the next day, I can still not write. And you're thinking, yeah, I'm glad it's not just me who feels this oh real my God, struggle yeah. with uh, putting words on a page. I will say, I, I <laughs> want to shout out um, a, a huge, if for anyone writing, a huge help for me was a podcast called The Beautiful Writers Podcast. And this woman, Linda, who's a writer herself, interviews like all of the most amazing writers you've ever dreamt of. She's interviewed on her show. And I remember being in the gym once listening to a podcast and she's interviewing maybe Marianne Williamson. She's interviewing two very famous writers and they both talk about how you hit a point. Every writer hits a point where they think that they're not going to be able to finish the book and that the book is never going to get done. And I burst into tears in the middle of the gym because I was feeling so alone in that moment, you know, because when you're writing, you're the only person that can do the writing. So it's just you and your computer for most of it. And um, I remember having that moment, just bursting into tears, like feeling seen for the first time in, in a while of just being like, okay, like if Marianne Williamson like has this problem, like thinking she has to give her book advance back, like I'm going to be fine, you know, um, figuring that out. But it was worth it. Do you feel like it was worth it for your book? 
Well, I'm not at the stage to judge that yet, but I hope so. I do remember sitting in the Lindley Library, which is the RHS library in London, where I was doing some research one day and looking through how many chapters I'd written so far. And suddenly a sort of a, a switch flipped and I suddenly thought I might actually be able to finish this book. I might actually be able to do it. My background in journalism means that I had written a book before, so I kind of had some experience of this. But I always think of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Throw Mama from the Train with no. Danny DeVito. <laughs> I promise you this is relevant. But he is, It's got Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal in it. And Billy Crystal is a, a creative writing teacher and, and Danny DeVito is his student. And um, <laughs> there's these excruciating scenes of the creative writing classes but what he always says what Billy Crystal always says is a writer writes and I always sort of say that to people when they're struggling and also to myself is you know just keep writing even if you think it's crap just keep writing because once you have something you can shape it you can edit it you can move things around but until you have something that's the hardest bit when you're actually just staring at the blank page once you've got something however crap it is it's something that you can model and you can work with oh and repurpose so much of stuff that got cut ended up getting repurposed as connective tissue in this you know in this chapter or you know this story fits better over here or whatever so a hundred percent like if you are in a big writing project, I did try to write, I think I tried to write like a thousand words a day or 2000 words a day. I had some sort of minimum I wanted to hit, even if I threw it out. Cause a lot of the times, just like you said, it ends up getting used or you end up finding some nugget of inspiration that ends up leading to a great chapter, you know, or something like that. So it's so interesting. I mean, it, it was the most humbling, heart opening experience I've had to date, you know, um, it's also a very interesting experience, like distilling your worldview, like into writing that, you know, will live on forever. It's crazy sometimes to think that this book might be the thing that someone in five decades picks up for a dollar at a thrift store. If we even have books at thrift stores in the future, right? Who knows? <laughs> but like, it is crazy to think, you know, I write to my listener. I wrote the whole book to, you know, very specific people that I had in mind that are, you know, members of my community, members of the listener community, but it's also kind of vulnerable and wild to think that people who don't know you or don't know your, you know, body of work might read it. And it's, it's all just been a very interesting experience, but also exciting because hopefully it helps people, right? Indeed. And I mean, I, I had that experience when I was crowdfunding my book. You know, I assumed that everybody who bought one of the Zoom houseplant consultations that, that was offered as part of the one of the pledge levels would be a fan of the podcast. So I was like turning up for these Zoom things. And some quite a few of the people, I would say about a third of the people had never listened to the podcast. Oh, my God, that's so cool. So it was I was blown away by that because I'm thinking, wow, that's so cool. That's, that's amazing. So cool. So, <laughs> I mean, a lot of the time it was lovely. It was lovely listeners. And, and, you know, they were immediately familiar to me because they understood, you know, who I am. But as I say, the, about a third of them, they were just coming at me as I was some kind of person, houseplant person they'd never wow. come across before. So that was interesting. I'm sure that'll be your experience, too. I just wanted to also recommend one more book to you, which you may not have come across talking about books in thrift stores. There's a really interesting book called, it's either called Up A Plant in My Window or The Plant in My Window by Ross. Oh, I've been recommended this book before, but I haven't read it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I have found it really hard to get a copy. I had to get the RHS library in London to get a copy for me because the only copies I could find were hundreds of pounds but you might be able to get it more easily in the US. It's amazing because it's a book about a guy living in a New York apartment who has this Hartley philodendron and sort of it provides him with lots of revelations. And he writes this whole book centered around this plant and how he gets to understand it and know it. Yeah, you should definitely put that on your list. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. That sounds like my favorite book so I've moved to the country this year. I never want to move back to New York City. I lived in New York City for a decade, right? So I'm a city person. I'm a city girl. I grew up in the suburbs of New York and I lived in New York City proper for 10 years. Living in the country has like totally changed. You know, now when I go back to the city, I'm like, oh my God, it's so bright and it's so loud and everybody's walking so fast. But um, one thing, I mean, one of my favorite things about being in any city, but there's something in particular about New York City is 
whenever I walk down streets or when you're in a, a taxi cab, like looking into the windows and seeing the silhouettes of plants. I don't know. It makes me feel less alone. Like I just, I love knowing that there are other plant people out there. And I just, I, it's one of my favorite things to do is just walk around the city and look, look at the silhouettes. I just think it's so fun. Yeah, that's a really, I like to look in the windows anyway. Uh, there's always something interesting going on. But if there's plants, that's a bonus. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. I'm constantly thinking of houseplant books that I want to exist, that not necessarily that I want to write, but th- that don't seem to exist, that I want to wish into existence. Is there? Is that the same for you? Are there books that you just don't seem to exist that you'd like to read about anything planting? I find, good question. I find most of the time, if I have an idea like this, there's already a book that's been written. I would like to say that the book that I wrote hasn't really been written before through the lens that I talk about plant care and self-care. Yet this plant in my window kind of sounds similar to my book that I don't know about. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit, it was written in the 50s. And you can, t- if I can say this, you can tell it's written in the 50s. Like the way he talks about his, I think he has okay. a housekeeper or cleaner or something who's obviously female. So like, you know, mm-hmm. it's of its era. Yeah. It's nothing like your book. I mean, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah. But yeah. It's written by a ma- an American man in the 1950s. So you can got imagine. It, got it. Got it. Um, what I will say, and and I'll say this, what, I've, what, what I don't have in my collection, which I think would make for a great book. And I've told several people that I think could write this book, this, uh, but I don't know if anybody wants to tackle this, but maybe this book already exists, Jane, and you could recommend one to me. All of my houseplant books have sections on pests, but there's no dedicated book that I know of to houseplant pests and houseplant problems. And I think that would be a very interesting book. Yeah, exactly. Is there one? No, there isn't. And in fact, I've just had an answer to question on this on the show a couple of weeks ago. There isn't one. And the book I recommended is uh, an RHS book that covers pests and diseases indoors and outdoors. But yeah, somebody should write that book. I think the reason why they haven't is because uh, for one thing, the list of chemicals that you can use is constantly changing mm-hmm. uh and so people sort of fear that and also it's difficult to sell across countries Absolutely, because of the differences between the US and the UK and other parts of the world in terms of what's available. And I know this when I'm doing pest episodes that people are like uh, crazy about neem oil in the US. It's not licensed for use here. Um, Also things like um, BTI, mosquito bits and things, you can't, that they're not licensed here either. So I think that's probably the reason, but I think a book on that would still be really, really useful. I agree. Because there's always a chapter and I go through all of my vintage, you know, books and, and current books and, you know, they all kind of more or less say the same thing, but there's not even like great illustrations or um, Mm. photos. Like I think that there easily could be a book dedicated to that subject matter. But I think what you brought up is exactly why that it hasn't been made because I think it would have been made if it would have been easy to make already because it's such a pain point for our community, right? Pests are such a pain point for us. Um, What about you? Well, the other thing I think is really missing, and I really noticed this when I was doing research um, in the RHS library, was like there are very few houseplant books that cover a single genus. So back in the day, in the 70s, people were publishing books about begonias. People were publishing books about ficus, about ferns, about hoyas. And now those kind of genus, like narrowing down to a particular genus, those books don't really exist anymore. Not that I know of. And um, yes, you have to go find the vintage ones. You're totally right. Or if they do exist, they're very academic and very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. So like I had to use some reference resources for like various things I was looking at, particularly Ficus Lyrata, I think it was. I had to look at various very expensive books about trees of Africa. Um, And uh, yeah, you just don't get those kind of books or, you know, there were this guy, Jack Kramer, he wrote a lot of houseplant books and, you know, he wrote ones about indoor trees Mm -hmm. and you know all these things that we just don't break down in a book form which i think would be i would love to see an updated version of that or a whole book on begonias or i would love like a see i would like i would love like an encyclopedia series i think that would be so cool to do like some sort of like under the same publisher with a similar cover and you could have a shelf of hoya fern begonia 
um, you know, ficus, all of that kind of stuff. That would be so cool. And like kind of a collector's item. That would be really cool. That would be really cool. But I think, I don't know if there's the appetite for it anymore, but I agree. I think that would be amazing. I mean, certainly a book on Hoyas. I do have one book on Hoyas called The Genus Hoyer, but it's kind of out of date now. A lot of the scientific names have changed and some of the key species that are grown now are missing. So it's interesting. I just don't think there's enough appetite in the publishing industry to to go down that road necessarily. People think that they're looking Because it's so niche. That's so niche. Like how many people would buy that? Yeah. I don't Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, I, I just bought a really amazing book on lithops, which came out uh, in the last couple of years, which is has, was a self-published book, which is amazing. If you're into lithops, stone plants, it's unbelievable. It has, it's just the best. It's exactly what I want out of mm-hmm. a let's focus on one genus kind of book. It's got pictures of like the every single different type of seed capsule that lithops has which is a lot and it's got pictures of the different landscapes where each species grows and what the geology is it's amazing it's amazing isn't that the best feeling like when you have a question or a passion for something and then you have that oh my god this is exactly what i want i launched a virtual garden society this year uh for my listener community and we have leslie halleck who i think has been on your show She She has, has, right? Leslie is our horticulturist in residence. And, you know, Leslie is like the biggest plant nerd ever. And she gives these lectures once a month. And like some of these lectures, it literally feels like, oh my God, thank you for answering this question. You know, like that, oh, like when, when it's a book or when it's someone, a real expert, like this lithops person you're talking about, a true expert in lithops who really knows how to educate. That is like the greatest, most satisfying feeling of finally understanding the why behind, you know, the the depths of the passion that you can't find on the internet. You know, you can't find that that deep dive on lithops or, you know, in my case, the deep dive on variegation, you know, that she talks about. You can't find it easy for free on YouTube, you know? Exactly. And that's the thing. A lot of these people who just do have that really in-depth knowledge, they're not online. They're too busy in their greenhouses. They're not necessarily dispensing this information in, you know, Facebook groups. And that's why you end up with, you know, (laughs) really terrible advice being dispensed. And Facebook is a scary. I mean, I think now too, Facebook can be so volatile that people are even maybe scared to share their opinions because they don't want to get trolled you know yeah (laughs) yeah it's a a difficult space i mean you know i think it's in a way a lot of the facebook stuff is common sense just treat somebody as you would treat them if you were face to face and just be polite but it frustrates me that sometimes the drama that goes on in these groups and and also just people uh, people being over helpful like they don't actually know what something is but they're gonna state what it is without really having having anything to back that up mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know that said i think that the planty corners of facebook that i inhabit which is for me personally which is my facebook group for listeners to my show and a few other groups that i run like this abundance group and stuff actually yeah that local group sounds really nice when it's harnessed for good, it's amazingly yeah, powerful. Totally. And, you know, I think that's the thing. If it's managed well, Facebook can be an amazing space and you can learn loads. So it's like like anything in life. It's it's how it's a tool that you can use in different ways and uh, also a great way of hooking up with people to do uh, swaps and things, which is how I get most of my plants. So Yeah. And in that <laughs> local group you've created sounds great. Yeah. And I mean, even on Twitter, I mean, you know, I'd run this houseplant hour on Twitter. Um, I mean, in Twitter, you know, whatever your views about Elon Musk is a quite a lively environment, Mm -hmm. as it were. And yet that hour on the Tuesday night is absolute bliss there. It's just people sharing their plants and asking for advice. It is just a gorgeous hour of plantiness and there's there's never any trouble. So we've got to focus on those positive bits but i still think as you say books really do offer something that that deep dive that you can't necessarily get online 
And that's a powerful thing. And I mean, gosh, let's hope so, given that we've both just written books. I know. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, it's been great to chat to you, Maria. And as ever, you've been a delight. Is there anything else you need to tell me about this book? I mean, I'll put all the stuff in the show notes. Uh, when is it coming out? And hopefully it'll be available in all good bookshops, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, it comes out June 28th. Um, it's available on Amazon internationally, I believe. So any of your British audience, you're still welcome to order it. It's called Growing Joy, The Plant Lover's Guide to Cultivating Happiness and Plants. And it is my love letter to plants. It's it's a combination of, you know, over 60 practices that you can immediately start implementing. There's truly something for everyone, whether it's science-based or, you know, science-based practices or totally woo-woo, sing to your plants practices. I have something for everyone. Uh, combined with some stories about my personal growth and a lot of journaling prompts throughout the book too, to get the reader to really start going deeper, digging deeper. They're called dig deep prompts um, to start digging deeper in their relationship with plants. So I wrote it hoping that it just, it gives everybody one more, uh, it, it helps enrich everyone in, in one, one way or another, right? You take what works and, and you leave what doesn't. Um, but yeah, I, I would love for people to pre-order or purchase whenever, you know, whenever this airs, it's currently trapped in Turkey on a cargo ship, but I believe the pub date is going to be June 28th. Fabulous. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading it and let's hope it gets unlocked from Turkey in time. Yes. <laughs> By the and time this people, comes out. <laughs> and if people want to, um, I'm going to do a very cool, uh, a very cool episode for the launch on Bloom and Grow Radio podcast called the Growing Joy Challenge. And it's going to be members of our community all sharing their experiences with how plants have enriched their lives. So that's going to be a very moving episode. If people want an episode all about their feels, you know, if you oh. want to cry, if you want to listen to something and cry, you can tune into this oh episode because these we're sorting through all of these submissions right now. And some of them are like, oh so I literally gosh. just sat on my couch and cried for like two hours. And, you know, if for some reason there's, you can always follow me on Instagram at bloom and grow Maria. And if there is weird stuff that happens with the book, that's, that's where I'll announce, you know, <laughs> what country the book is stuck in now, but uh, we're rolling with it. We're rolling with it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Maria. Thanks for having me, Jane. And I can't wait to read your book. I'm so excited. And it's been very fun for us offline to uh to commiserate about the publishing process and so excited for your continued success as well thank you well let's hope it's uh, well i've got a while to wait yet but we'll get there in the end i hope my book doesn't get trapped somewhere but uh yes and we'll have you over on blooming grow radio to celebrate when your book comes out for sure thanks so much of the music means another episode of On The Ledge is coming to an end thanks so much to Maria Fiella, my guest this week check out her book Growing Joy there are details in the show notes as well as a list of all the other books we've mentioned I'll be back next Friday do join me until then when it comes to houseplants follow your heart but more importantly Use your eyes and all your senses to help observe your plants. Bye! The music you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Young by Komiku, and Oh Mallory by Josh Woodward. The ad music was Deal Pickles by the Heftone Banjo Orchestra. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit the show notes for details.